0: As we did uh, yesterday, we can have an opportunity now for um, some uh, Dhamma dialogue, uh, questions and uh, responses. Uh, so, uh, anything that people would like to to bring up or ask about to have clarified, please uh, <coughs> feel free. <coughs> Though we're not particularly encouraging writing notes to us, people have been. <laughs> so. Um, uh so there are a couple of questions that came in just on paper, but uh, if people would like to first of all just uh <coughs> uh voice any questions or doubts that uh, that you have, then please uh, uh bring that forth. <coughs> we have a
1: oh we do, oh yeah. Go ahead take that one. I take that one?
2: Um.
0: Go ahead,
1: Right.
2: right. I just I wanted to say thank you very much for the guided meditation on death. That was really helpful. Um, Although I I mean I was the one person who was laughing a lot. (laughs) But um, (laughs) what was really valuable about it was it helped me realise about a bit of um, a little bit of work I need to do with my ex-husband around, um, uh, although our marriage ended 16 years ago, he left 16 years ago, but there's a place where um, I haven't, I did, I did set up um, a ceremony at Hartridge a year after the marriage ended, that he chose not to come, and in that I did ask for forgiveness for any way in which I hurt him, and also gave forgiveness, although of course it's an ongoing process, (laughs) It's not just, just (laughs) something that simmers, but I realised that he'd never heard me say that, that I asked for forgiveness and I realised about, I just realised about all the ways that we can hurt people (coughs) without even being aware, besides the ones where we are aware. So I thought oh that would be a really useful thing for me to do to write and uh, and just neaten that, that bit up. So it was it was very, very useful for me. And it's, I noticed that, that once we s- stop operating from that place of ego or like self righteousness, how you just realise how how about all the people that we've you know I've probably harmed over the years without if ev- some many without even meaning to and because I noticed how I felt harmed and then often people haven't meant to or haven't intended, I've just read it that way. So so it's very, very useful for me. So I'm very grateful for that. Thank you very much. I hope to tidy up another bit. <laughs> Thank you. I
0: forgive you for giggling.
2: <laughs> it was funny <laughs> dying felt funny
1: I I thank you for giggling
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was the dying laughing representative <laughs> could I just second that I don't could we
4: as peacefully
1: and calmly as I did then I have no worries thank mm. you mm. <laughs> mm. we only we we use the mic because then it gets on the uh, recording and I think this gentleman was first
5: if the body is heating up very much in meditation what can you do to cool down if it's too much uh, that kind of fire energy what to, to do to cool down
0: Um, I'm tempted to say open more windows, <laughs> <laughs> take off your jacket, you know? yeah. but also uh, the um, one shouldn't necessarily think of that as being something wrong, you know, energy is energy mm. and it can be steered and transformed in different ways and just as at the end of the, the guided meditation this morning where I said if you're feeling regret, you know, don't try to fix it, if you're feeling fear or or delight, you know, don't try to to grasp it or or fix it or or get rid of it, but just using the the power of awareness, bringing the awareness to that quality so that in a way you can let heatedness be the object. And then what happens is that our whole system has its own wisdom, its own intelligence and so then um, uh, by bringing awareness to that that feeling of heat uh, in the in the body, say you'll uh, probably find w- ways within yourself of helping to to steer that or, or transform that, and just to know it as heat element. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And uh, but maybe Joseph has a few things to say on that. Yeah.
1: The, the The only other thing that I would say, and you know, John and I have, uh, when we talked earlier, we're going to try to be as brief as we can because we both can kind of go on a bit, but. I know one thing I'm noticing for myself is, is kind of setting myself to, up to fight something. So if I'm sleepy, I'm going to fight it. If I'm restless, I'm going to fight it. So the same thing like heat, there's a tendency to say, oh no, going now I'm going to deal with heat. So we, we kind of set, set ourselves up to fight fight it. And so rather than fighting it to kind of soften and open and embrace it more, and, and that attitude can help to change, so you're just kind of letting it be what it is, like Sanditiko, you know, what is apparent here and now. And uh, that the most, often we can't change things, but our attitude towards it, how we embrace it, soften to it, and open to it, can be uh, very uh, healing and cooling at the, uh, at the same time. Thank you. Mm. You're
0: welcome. Just, as Joseph was speaking, I was reminded of a, of a heated experience. I was at the, um, uh, the temple in, uh, in Kusinara, Kushinagar in India, and uh, where the Buddha passed away, the final parinibbana. There's a, a beautiful, reclining Buddha image, quite old and very, very uh, serene. And I was there at Visakha Puja, the full moon of May, so it was the middle of the hot season. Sitting inside this enclosed temple, anyone who's been to Kushinagar will know. So I was sitting there, and there was literally this puddle. It's my body was just pouring sweat. So it was an extremely heated experience. But the 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 place, you know, the place of the Buddha's final passing away, and this incredibly serene image. There was this extraordinary ease. At the same time, it was about you know, 45 degrees Celsius. You know. And that, uh, so that there can be the, the feeling of heat in the body from, from whence ever it's come, but also the attitude towards it is a different thing. Ooh. So that there, even though there, there was that extreme heatedness, you know, it was kind of funny, I could literally feel a river. <laughs> you know, I could feel the, the flow of sweat down my back like a stream. Um, but yet there was this serene quality. So I just would echo what Joseph would say about that.
3: Should be. I, I too wanted to thank you for the guided meditation. And the thought I had was, if it was taped, I would try and arrange to have it at my deathbed. <laughs> 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 but then I also thought, actually, um, I might have a sudden death at any time, or I may not have my faculties intact to follow the meditation. So it brought home to me something Catherine had said at the weekend seminar about taking care of things as you go along. You know, it really kind of uh, emphasized that, the forgiveness or, you know, having those difficult conversations each day and the letting go and mindfulness each day. thank you.
0: Rosie. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, was it recorded? Yes. <laughs> sure. and giggles included. <laughs>
6: Where
0: is he?
7: Um, I came to the temple quite late on, and saw all these people lying there, like corpses, as if they'd died, and I was quite shocked at first, and I thought, looks like there's been a natural disaster. <laughs> But then I thought, actually, probably that number of people die around Hemel Hempstead every day. But we never see it all together, do we? It's always sort of behind closed doors and whisked away. And I was thinking of a maternity ward, all the babies in their cots, all together. Sometimes, or they used to be anyway, when I was a nurse. But you never put all the. It, they're all hidden in the mortuary and the curtains are closed and everything. So that was one thought I had. I thought it was a very good exercise. I thought, yeah, I could be in a hospital bed, there could be people snoring next to me, there could be people laughing, there could be a party going on next door and I'm dying at home, or people laughing in the next room. It might not be the peaceful, quiet time I'm hoping for. (laughs) Um, Another thought I had was again about birth. Um I I was when I was pregnant with my first child I went to these antenatal classes and um the mid we were practicing giving birth sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and the stages and everything and the breathing. And the midwife said, yes, but some of you might not have a natural childbirth, some of you might have to have a caesarean or you might have to have forceps or you might have to have an epidural or, or be on um, heavily sedated or something, you don't know what kind of birth you're going to have. We're all hoping we're going to have a normal birth and we're working to that, but it might not happen. And, and I thought even more about that, about, um you know, when I was nursing, a lot of people were unconscious before they died. Or they were on morphine, or the Brompton's cocktail, as we used to give then. I don't know whether it's still giving. Um Then there's all the people in the old people's homes who are often heavily sedated anyway, whether they like it or not. And um, so I think a question's emerging here about, you know, we just try and stay conscious, do we, till we, till we disappear? <laughs>
0: Well, in in essence, yes. (laughs) But also, my experience of of being with with people dying and also people who've been in um, uh, extreme states, uh, say, in unconscious or or, um, in those kind of situations who've come back and reported either my own personal experience or reading accounts, that there's a lot more communication that goes on than, than is apparent at surface level. I'm sure many people in the, this room have had that same sort of experience, whereby what can it can seem like the person that you're with is is really drifted away, um, and that you're losing contact, or they can't hear you, or they can't respond. But they're they're right there with you. You're right there with them. It's just their their means of uh, of communication is uh, the normal means of communication are disappearing. And so I have tremendous confidence in that. I was both with both my parents as they died, and uh, both of them were were you know, slipping into unconsciousness or, or had gone into unconsciousness before they died. But I am absolutely sure they they knew that I was there. My other sisters mm-hmm. were were there with them, and that um, the uh, and actually when my, my father died, and uh, it, the, just before he passed away, that he'd had a, a aortic aneurysm uh, and they thought because he'd had a heart attack several years before they didn't realize that his aorta had split so they gave him blood thinners mm. so by the time they realized what had happened then he had too much internal bleeding so but anyway the family was able to gather around uh, and, and be with him and uh, but then his uh, it was. Uh, after we'd spent the day with him and the next morning with the typical british understatement you know the doctor said um, could you come in uh, immediately mr horner is rather poorly <laughs> 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 so, it was, uh, so we we scooted into the hospital as quickly as we could and, and you know my father was indeed uh, you know, slipping into into unconsciousness and then uh, his uh, his sort of uh, uh, vital functions started of slipping away, and then they, they levelled out. It seemed like he was fading, and then they they levelled out, and they stayed level for um, about two or three hours. Then we just we were sitting with him, and uh, and um, and then suddenly, uh, after uh, two or three hours of being with him, and suddenly you know, everything just slowed down, and suddenly he was gone. And then I, I was sitting with my mother shortly afterwards, and in, uh, in this little side room at the hospital in, in Maidstone, in Kent, and so I said, the typical English, are you all right, Mum?
4: <laughs>
0: and she said, well, no, not really. <laughs> and I said, well, do you want to talk about it? And she said, well, well as we were sitting with Dad, she said, I, I don't normally do this sort of thing, but, you know, I, I prayed. And so I made this, uh, this prayer, which was, because yeah, I had this feeling that he was hanging on for us, and so uh, I said, you know, "Please, you know, please don't stay around just for, for our sake or for my sake, you know, if you want to, to move on, you know, please go, you know, I, I give you my, my permission, I give you my blessing if you want to go. And then he just went at that moment. And she's, uh, <clears throat> so she said, well, I, you know, I didn't want him to die, <laughs> but it, uh, and I didn't say anything, but it was just so quick. And I, I said, "Well, you know, Mum, in that kind of a state, thoughts are, are louder than words. Mm-hmm. That uh, the, the faculties are going so 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 quickly, so completely that uh, I would say that, that 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 thought in your mind was was as loud to him as as if you had spoken your words you know, to uh, into his ear." And she said, "But I didn't I w- didn't want him to go, but." <laughs> And I said, "Yeah, well, it wasn't. Yeah, you, you know, you, you loved him. You wanted to help him, so that you shouldn't feel bad about it. It wasn't like you said, get lost, you old bugger,' <laughs>
4: you <know? laughs>
0: which my mother could have. <laughs> she was capable of saying that kind of thing. But um, she, uh, it was uh, it was very powerful. To, that it was just a, a thought in her mind, and the and the effect was instantaneous. And then, so he had her blessing and permission." And, was it? Just gone. So that uh, I feel that, that my own personal experience of that and I feel it's important when being with others that just uh, trusting the quality of presence. It's often not a lot of, of what you say or what you do but that uh, that you're there, you care and you're, you know, you're paying attention, you're with them. And that's, I would say, of of what can be offered. Fear of rambling on Uh too long, I'll pass over to Joseph.
1: I think that's very, that's that's lovely Ajahn, I think it's a wonderful example for not just dying, but how often uh, uh, a close friend, relative, um, our loved ones, whatever it might be, uh, are in great need, but all they really need is someone to be there and hold them, but uh, one's tendency can be, oh, I want to fix it. I want, in other words, our discomfort can come up, my discomfort can come up and say, oh, well, I want to change this rather than, I totally hold you in, in the Sunditi Code, or what is apparent here and now, and that's all the person needs. I don't need validation, I don't need fixing, I just need a good cry. And you want to sit there with my friend and hold my hand, or give me a hug if I need, or whatever, is lovely. And, and probably enough and more than enough just in the situation of dying. The other thing that came to mind and what's being talked about, I think it's very important in the exercise and what we did and if I, I found myself, when I first, uh, when I was at Harnam I worked on this a lot. I, I know in Vietnam that I uh, killed one person for sure. I didn't actually shoot the uh, the gun but I was in charge. So right behind me in this little helicopter is uh, is the uh, crew chief gunner, has an M60 machine gun, which is a very powerful thing, any machine gun. And and so we came across a, 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 a Viet Cong soldier. He was where he wasn't supposed to be, and we had a, what we called a free fire zone. So if it was a free fire zone, we didn't have to—if we took fire, then we could return fire. If we didn't take fire. And it wasn't a free fire zone. We had to call and say, oh, we see something and, you know, can we engage, whatever. So free fire zone means somebody's there, they're not supposed to be there, and that's their time's up. And I might get emotional with this. Um, So we were flying. And, and, and forgive me, but I'm going to kind of make it as real. And, and the gunner said, you know, there's a gook, there's a gook. And that's the derogatory term, which you kind of make the enemy so it's easier. And he was standing up like this. And all I could do was say, shoot, shoot, shoot. Now, when I think back and reflect on that moment now and all these years, and for many years I spent as a monk kind of reflecting on that, that that order I gave, and that my responsibility in that moment to take that human being's life, was the training that I had. But my heart feels clear in that I really couldn't have without the training in the things. In other words, I wasn't killing him because you know I hated him because he was Vietnamese, or because maybe he had killed or shot down one of my fellow helicopter pilots. And, and the bigger point, I think, is that every day and every moment, really, and this is what I found in the hall during Ajahn's exercise that we, we did together, is that this can be our ongoing practice. And I found myself just kind of letting my memory kind of run freely, just kind of flow, and what is it? the old girlfriend, when I was, you know, a footballer, American footballer. I remember really doing date rape when I was very young, and you know what they call it now, and and just thinking through these things where I had been unkind in some way or had been violent or whatever, and just allowing them to come into my heart and feel them. and 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 the thing is, we have that opportunity now, so the more... And that's really rehearsal, isn't it? That's really preparation and rehearsal. So ideally, we don't have any surprises or in that moment of unconsciousness that as best that we can, we've not only forgiven, but asked for forgiveness, but but we we 're giving forgiveness as well. it goes both ways, and I also would say we want to reflect on our acts of goodness and kindness. The tendency is oh i 've been such a bad person and yada yada and i 've these last twenty one years. A lot of that, but I come back here and the first person I saw came up to me, oh, do you remember me? And I don't remember, you know, particularly remember you, but I said, was, and I said, well, was it good? She said, well, yes, I, it was very lovely, you were very kind to me, and I said, well, I'm pleased, you know. <laughs> and I didn't, I never knew that unless this person came up to me. So we don't realize, one doesn't realize the impact that we've had. But as we reflect on it, we can say, I've done a lot of good things. I've raised my children the best I can. I've taken care of my mother when before she passed, or my father, or my good friend, or whatever. So I think all of this is just kind of opening and letting that flow in and and kind of cleansing, purifying ourselves.
0: Yeah, it's just to, to say, um, so following from that from, uh, uh, and the others, uh, that... By doing this kind of practice, and working with with the mind, with our our, our memories, the events of our life, the good that's been done, the the harm that's been done, the more that we can fully know that, receive that, accept that, uh, while we have all our faculties, or most of our faculties together, then, when the moment comes, even if you have a very short period of time, then you know what to do. As I was alluded to this morning, we, we've done this so many times. Yeah. We've done. We've all died so many times. I would. Say, I would say, from my perspective, that we we know this. But also, like Joseph was just describing, that if we're not really acquainted with the unfinished business, the things we're still carrying around, then they will. They will be there. But I would really. Uh, I just. Uh, I told. I think I told a little story on the, the mindful aging weekend about. Um, a friend of ours, I was living in California, the next door to Abayagiri Monastery is another Thai Forest Monastery where people, uh, people from mostly Thai restaurants um, co-own this, this large property and uh, they have a forest monastery up there and they come up and there's about a dozen, fifteen kutis, they'll come on retreat for a weekend or a week and then go back to the city again. So after one weekend stay this car with, with uh, three of our friends was heading back to San Francisco and uh, uh, the, the, the highway has a, an area where it, it follows right beside Russian River and sweeps around in these curves. And uh, the fellow who's driving it, his name was Crit, as he was making one of the, these curves on the highway beside Russian River, he saw a car you know, coming the opposite way, you know, making the curve. And you know how perception works, that, that first of all he, he thought the car was, was sort of following the road as, uh, you know, as one would expect, and suddenly he realized, oh! It's not making the turn. That car is not taking the curve. It's coming right at me. And he, didn't, he wasn't paying close attention, so he didn't realize until the car was right in front of him that they were going to have a head-on collision. And uh, he, um, he realized, when he was, the car was about uh, five yards away by the time he realized it was going to hit him. And so he realized, I have no way of getting out. I have no way of evading this. Uh, we're going to collide, and so he said. Uh, just as Joseph was describing with his experience in the helicopter, everything slowed down. <laughs> he took his hands off the wheel, and 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 realized I better get ready. He also realized, well, this is what I've been sitting with aching knees and a wandering mind for for the last fifteen years, coming up and spending all these hours and hours in this little kuti up in the up in the forest. You know, I've been giving myself this practice in order to be ready for this moment and this was like one and a half seconds is what he estimated, but less than two seconds between when he realized when he realized the car was going to hit them and when, he, and when the impact happened and as it, it, it came about obviously he survived uh, the car rode up, the other vehicle was slightly larger so it rode up over the bonnet and ripped the, the roof of the car off on the passenger side fortunately the passenger was a very short woman called Noi, which means small, <laughs> and she was five foot nothing, and so the 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 car went over the top of her head and pulled the the roof of their car off um and she and Crick, because they had their seat belts on were both had got away with cuts and bruises but um and then the 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 uh, woman who was in the back Mechi yo she was uh, she was more seriously injured because she was lying on the back seat having a nap but um <laughs> Uh, but it was very, uh, I think, a very important uh, story because he had one and a half seconds, didn't even have the whole three <laughs> three to four seconds of uh, you know, the beginning to the end of an out-breath. It was an extremely short period of time, but in that moment, he knew exactly what to do. Okay, drop everything, get ready, because here it comes. Let go. And that... Uh, and he was not like a particularly sort of advanced meditator. He was not like some sort of super yogi, <laughs> but you know someone who'd been practicing for a number of years. So that that was a very good example, uh, I feel, of um, that by uh, say developing this practice and by you know, steering the mind in this way, preparing ourselves. Then, even if we have very very little time at all, then we we can be ready and we can have done all of our homework and done all of the uh, those, uh, um the
1: letting go that we need to before. Yes. There's some. Uh, go ahead, and then there's a, a several down there by Rory. That in the lady in the. No. Okay, let's go. One that one one that this the lady in the reddish shir- shirt was. I think had her hand up first.
2: To the, the, uh, the so to
4: speak I just wanted to <coughs> thank you as well um, it was very very helpful um, especially the um, guide, uh, guidance on letting go of um, any um, things that you hang on to Now, what I'd like to know is, um, how do you deal with very painful bereavement, which I've suffered, and which has been clouding my life for four years? And is it clinging, or is it something that comes from outside and you haven't got any control over
0: Well, the the um the feeling of grief um that uh, my my own sense is that nowadays in the west there's a rejection of the um the the whole quality and the necessity of mourning and grieving that the society keeps in- encouraging people to just get over it and you know let's carry on and cheer up and that uh, I, I feel that as, as human beings, particularly when someone very close to us has died—a uh, you know, parent or a child or a loved one—that um, it's it's not only natural; it's important for us to give ourselves the, the time and the space to grieve. And uh, in traditional cultures in, in Europe, um, even as uh, as a younger child, I remember particularly on the continent. Um, when somebody died that the the person would go into mourning and they, w- they would wear black and they would be held in a different way by the other people in the village, they wouldn't be expected to participate in village life and the community life in the same way for a good year after their spouse had died or that someone close to them had, had passed away so they were given, socially they were given the space to feel that sense of sadness and loss and, uh, and nowadays I, I feel there's a, there's this sort of move towards more and more superficiality, just sort of pushing that away. Like cheer up, get over it. You know, you've got to move on. You know, don't uh, don't uh, don't make yourself miserable. And I feel that's a terrible mistake, uh, myself. And that um, it's important that we give ourselves the the, the, the uh, permission to to grieve and to to let the the tears flow. And then by by acknowledging that. That feeling and to really letting it be there, letting it, it ha- run its course for you know for as long as it takes, not then we find that if we're if, if we 're working with it skillfully, there isn't a wallowing going on, but there is a the the, a, a, the natural result of the the closeness and the dearness that has been there we 're feeling the 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 resonance of that, and then that the, and then as time goes by, that works its way through and then uh, we are able to um, relinquish that, and able to let it go in a natural way, not because we're uh, we're suppressing it or, or pushing it or or resenting it. Now that can be complicated by our feelings of regret. Say that oh, if only I had done something different, then they wouldn't have died, or, or that uh, if only I had taken the chance to say you know I loved that person before they died, then then and then and then. So the thinking mind can add greater difficulty and complexity and um, pain to it um, so it's. I would say it's important to to recognize that habit and to, to let that go as much as possible to, to understand that, not to feed that but um, it's also maybe just one last thing to say and ask for Joseph to make some comments what what happens in, in, in Asian tradition is that when somebody uh, close to us dies, then people will Make their their the, their death coming a week after the death, then a uh, hundred days after the death, and on the year anniversary of the person's death, they will come to the monastery and make offerings and uh, say, uh, often um, say sponsoring a program for like a children's education or putting a uh, sponsoring a building or just a, a bench. I mean, Amravati has dozens and dozens of benches, but uh, things that are offering something. To, in the honor and in memory of that that person, so that slowly and steadily over time then that feeling of, of pain and loss and, and diminution by the person's absence slowly gets um, transformed into a, a, a rejoicing that we had spent time with them that we we had l- our lives together, and that their their presence in the world has become a, a catalyst for, so, for good things to come into being
4: can I Add something, maybe. This is a suicide of my son. It's not happy. It's it's a death which is more painful than a normal one.
1: Well, the 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 grief and the bereavement. I was thinking as Ajahn was talking, and it's like if say if we cut ourselves or we have an injury, the body is equipped to immediately come to uh, help heal, and we may need to be sewn up, or some other intervention. But there's a natural process, the body knows how to heal itself. And I believe in the same way our hearts, that if they're, they're broken uh, with a sense of loss and the grief and the bereavement, that, that the heart also knows how to heal itself. But societally, as Ajahn was saying, we're maybe not given that permission and, and encourage just, and, and and people that don't want, or the society that doesn't want to give permission is really the society that's in denial. And that, that's the very thing we're trying to to open up to here is not to deny that. So to give yourself permission to heal, and it's not gonna be maybe one good healing or one good cry, that's a start. And, and I've certainly uh, shed my fair share of tears over the years. and. I've always felt that that being able to cry in the appropriate situation and to be able to be supported and held in that by a close friend or just to trust in my own healing process that it's it's a very, it's very cleansing because it's like it's like a purifying process and so I think uh whatever that is it allows you and I to to open to it and I think the the, the beginning uh, the first stage is just being able to to cry at the appropriate time, and I certainly and I hope everyone here is willing to if any of us are feeling things that we can just embrace that and hold each other in the kind of the, the spirit and the and the love and the caring and the kindness that we have the context of this uh, retreat. Before we go on, I'd like to propose something, because there's, there's, we had a very powerful exercise, so I think it's very important, and I, I'm sure Ajahn will agree with me, that we kind of get everybody's questions. So, should we say an extra 15 minutes be into tea time? Does that sound at, at least? And see how we are, and then we can pause at, say, 5.15 And because I really we want to hear you and I think people are so let's move there and come down down this down this way. Rory, did you have something? I don't I'm not keeping track so much, but Hey, great. Okay. Thank you.
6: Thank you. I too found uh, this uh, afternoon's, or the mornings I've lost track of time, exercise in the temple um, very useful. And the sort of one phrase came to mind as I was lying there, surprisingly peaceful, but that's probably because we're in such a nice, peaceful environment, was that uh, life is, uh, is, is, is actually death by a thousand cuts, as I thought of all the moments in my life when I died in one way or another to to someone dying, a fire, or a contract lost, or someone leaving me, uh, all the disasters. But I wanted really to speak uh, in response to what Joseph said, because I was deeply moved by your story. And I, <coughs> having only had a glimpse of the sort of transpersonal realms, it's, no, it's just by no chance that that Vietnamese man was mentioned here today. And I'd just like to suggest that in this evening's Pooja, we think of that man, and his life, and his family, and um, wish him well. And also I'd like to do the same to your son so that we can think of him in the puja maybe put him top of the list uh, in where we send our matter and uh, our love and, and good wishes. That's all I want to say. Let
1: me get Ju- Julie first maybe. and then this one. Judith, sorry.
3: Thank you. I would like to say thank
0: closer.
3: closer. I would like to say thank you. It was a very good exercise, and um, it was guided in a very safe environment. It was a sanctuary which allowed me to then, of course, (laughs) navigate through my emotions and what came up for me. And um, what came up for me was I was really sad to die, until the moment when my child, and at that moment, it was something quite profound actually, I realized that precious child needed me to be there for her, and that without me, she's not able to live. Well, I may think that, but so. But something really interesting happened. Last week, I came here to the monastery with a friend, and in the woods, we were having the exact conversation, and my friend was crying about the fear of her dying and leaving her son, her son. And I was there as a friend, and had one or two tears rolling, but I never in a million years thought it was me, actually, that today doing the exercise in the temple, it would be my child that then wouldn't have a mother. And it felt so real. That really left me in shock. And in heat, I'm sweating incredibly, and I'm the sort of person that has to have jackets, but really sweating. And, and the trauma of not having my child, my pres- of my precious child having her mother for her, it's just really choking. But thank you.
1: This is my yes, so D- oh, okay. oh. Grab, grab, man.
2: Thank you. <coughs> I also wanted to thank you as well. As I was listening to the meditation, I stepped into my father's passing. I I became my father, and I wasn't there for him when he passed. So I had a very strong reaction. Um, But it allowed me to tap into that, uh, that I I didn't allow myself to feel. um, uh, So I I thank you for that. It it, uh, encouraged me to reach deeply. And it also made me aware that uh, I may not be surrounded by my loved ones. since I don't know when my last breath will be. So, uh, thank you very much.
8: I'm one of the note writers, so just
1: not here. Wait for for the mic, please. There it comes, yes. Although your your voice projects quite well.
2: Too
8: well, too well. Uh, I found this an extremely pleasant experience, Uh, and as I was waiting to see which breath would be the last, I realized that I'd done this before, and it was when I had taken an overdose in an attempt to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. We have now talked twice about suicide, and my note was prompted by what... Joseph said yesterday. Joseph spoke about his father and he spoke of suicide as a selfish act. And I would like to say that from my own personal experience, I think that is perfectly true. It was a selfish act on both occasions. It was an extreme form of wrong view, self, wrong identity view, if you like, self-obsession. But I also wanted to say that for many people who commit suicide, it does not seem like that at the time. Many people, particularly people suffering from depression, believe that they are doing the rest of the world a favour by taking themselves out of it. They have again a wrong identity view. Such A low sense of self-worth that they do not realize what the harm they will do to those they leave behind and this is perhaps something to bear in mind if one has had that experience as two people here have had and I had also asked in my note If there might be the possibility to think a little bit about the question of assisted suicide which in Belgium is legal for people who can give consent. It's not legal here. There's a lot of discussion about it and to me it seems very undesirable to ask other people to kill you. This this is my, my personal feeling. I realise that there are other points of view, but I heard a talk by the head of geriatrics of a leading Brussels hospital. They do euthanasia there and every time there is such a case, half the staff are sick or have family obligations or for some other reason can't be there because they don't want to be involved. That's Thank
5: you. <laughs> well, I'm very grateful to, to Sash because I've been um, repressing my question for about the last half hour and Mike sort of whizzed by thank goodness and, uh, and then I was trying to take care of you with your son because I was afraid if I brought my question in it could hurt you or harm you so I, forgive me for that and I must try not to repress my question but I think it was yesterday that um, Joseph was speaking briefly to suicide and the question I'll give the story in a moment but I think my question is something about the balance between the merit we do there's this expression I've heard burning up poor or not so good karma uh, in a way in reparation for what we might consider some of our not so good acts. (sighs) My father had a fairly straightforward death, and I had a very beautiful experience of that, except about a year before his death, my mother said, I don't want to go on beyond my, my husband's life. We've lived 56 years together, we'd like to stay together, and then that will be it for me. It was an early warning sign from my mother that she was asking me for something very early on. Four or five years later now, my mother is um, 87 years of age, she comes to the monastery, she enjoys Sunday talks. She has a a rich spiritual tradition to draw from and gain strength from, her Russian Orthodox tradition. Now gradually combining with Buddhism, of all things, quite a mixture. And about, as I say now, four going on, five years on, since my father's death, she is starting to develop increasingly severe memory loss. The way things are going, the way she sees it, the way things are going, is that this will be a deterioration into a very dark tunnel indeed. And she's um, expressing to me that she doesn't wish to go down that tunnel, and um, I, I am one of my mother's, one of my mother's principal carers, sort of care manager for her, so she feels out of the the deep love we have for each other, she's starting to give me hints that she would like me to be a part of her, not having to go down this dark tunnel, as she puts it. And I'm I'm really at a little bit of a loss as to how to be with that situation. It's a classic case of being split. Um, I love my mother two bits to the end and would do everything to support her in her final days except the teachings that i have is that it's really not a great idea to take your own life you are going to create some harm somewhere in the world for yourself perhaps beyond who knows and what was fascinating to me is i think joseph you mentioned something about the karmic influence yesterday so i think my question is something about that how to how to indeed be with somebody who's asking you to assist, how to, in a sense, I suppose, effectively try to steer them away from that route and to draw, and I don't think it's only Buddhism, I think a, quite a range of spiritual traditions will suggest we don't go down that path. and we, we just, I guess, stick it out somehow. So I'd love to hear something about this, what is known, what is taught by, by, by this karmic balance that we sit with. Sorry that's a long story, thank you hmm.
1: I'll start. Thank you, Gregor. Yes, um, this uh with Sash with your note, this discussion had come up earlier amongst us, and um I have no doubt that we could uh spend the rest probably till midnight, pass the mic around, and everyone would have something um, very important to say, has not that this is, uh, have thought about it, heard about it, and have some kind of view about it. <clears throat> and I think simply, or I, I believe simply put, that this is a, de- a decision, if, uh, if I'm involved in, that uh, I have to be as clear as I can about what I believe and how, uh, I wish to uh, uh, proceed for a loved one that may ask uh, uh, something of this nature, which really remains as my uh, my lovely wife, Catherine, uh, my mother, who's now 85, and my sister, who's will be 60 this year or next year. And um, I have to say that my personal reflection is... It's like with animals, we 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 put them down. Is that what they say in this country? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we think that is the kindest thing because they're suffering. And yet, if we, it, that's that's it's not as simple as that, in my view. And, and neither is is assisted suicide, because who is it? That, do I have, it's like killing myself as I was talking to you. how what, what gives this, whatever this is in here, the right to harm this? And if I feel I have that right, whatever that is, and I intervene, I think that's the key question, then I believe in my guts that I've created something that I that I've intervened in something that I perhaps should not be intervening in, just as a kind of a starting point. So with the animals, it's like, what is the why? Why do we do that? We think, well, it's kind, it's compassionate, but is it not in many cases that I'm not comfortable watching? Sanditiko, what is apparent here and now? The, you know the dumb is right here in front of me this this poor little animal is suffering I think about our little kitty cat I mean this cat like has me like around her her you know her her claws her paws and and I know I'll be devastated and I reflect and I've been reflecting on on her death and this attachment that I have but it's not it's it's not really what it is so much as 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 the strength that it gives and what it means to us and so but I know that'll be a great challenge for both Catherine and I when uh, Sabrina, her name is she, she is is ill, and and how the decision that we'll have to make, or can we nurse her till her final days? And I think that's the 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 real question is like how how much am I willing to be responsible? I think that's the key question. So an intervention, taking responsibility for that intervention whatever it is and the person that maybe it is one's mother um, if that's her wish then then it's 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 really I think we that one has to kind of deeply search and 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 do what feels like the right thing and take and take full responsibility for that like that man that I was responsible that Vietnamese soldier for killing that I can't change that you know, something in the future I have more choice in, but that i can 't change, so I have to accept that and 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 not with guilt or or anything, but just fully embrace it. I did that i 'm fully responsible, uh, I feel somewhat uh, I know uh, fellow soldiers who killed in a very different way in Vietnam, so I have a comparison of that, so it frees my heart to some extent, but i 'm not afraid of whatever karmic result. That may be uh, for the the future for me. So I think I'll stop there because I, I'd really like to get Ajahn and that input because I think this is a it's a we said well this is a hot topic and from here to to really all Western countries certainly I don't know how much in Asia these days and and uh, it is but uh, this is something that's uh, is, is very big and I think very relevant for for each of us.
0: I'm very. Um glad that the, the subject came up because it's a, it's a subject of great concern to me as well and I feel um, the way that in countries like Switzerland and Belgium, also in the state of Oregon, uh, assisted suicide is legal and that the whole public debate in this country I've been keeping a close eye on and um, reading up uh, uh, and informing myself as much as possible as to what people are thinking, how they're speaking. Um, I speak not just as a as a monk who's got rules about not encouraging suicide, but also as a human being. Even if I wasn't a monk, I think I'd, I'd feel exactly the same way. I feel very concerned about uh, how um, the, there's the, the drift of, well, uh, my life is not worth living because I can't live it according to my sort of preferred circumstances or... Uh, um, uh, and so, therefore, you know, my life is not worthwhile. Therefore, uh, I want to end it. And the, even though that make that makes sense on a rational level, and I, I acknowledge there's all sorts of um, assumptions in there, I, I, uh, I feel that uh, that's a a, a, um, a a dreadful mistake to make. That uh, we are saying that you know life is only worthwhile if we have. Um, clarity of mind, we have competence, uh, we have you know, ability to, s- to speak and remember and function and that if my life is not able to, if I can't f- live according to my preferred and sustain my preferred self-view then life is not worth living. Because we, that, to me that, that's a a very powerful statement of clinging to self-view. Um, as Joseph was saying it ignores the fact of our relatedness to other beings it's like, in a way, it's affirming, I am this separate individual who's disconnected from everything else, and what I do is not anybody else's business." where I would say that's a, you know, a radical misunderstanding, a misreading of the actuality, that we are very connected with each other. I was reflecting about this issue last night after Joseph's talk, and I was reminded how, in the Native American tradition, that when, when uh, they speak about them, themselves or in the, the Lakota language. Uh, they use this phrase "all my relations," that not just talking about when you say "I" or "me" or "my life," you you, you talk about yourself as all your relations. Yeah, the I even actually kind of wrote the <laughs> wrote the "mitakuye oyasin" is the Lakota for "all my relations." That's the phrase that is used. Like when you talk about yourself, is how could it just be this? There's not just me. There's also uh, Madeleine Barat There's Carl Goldschmidt. There's uh, Charles Julian Horner. There's uh, the, uh, all my ancestors. Katharina Falkenstein. <laughs> Hiram Rubin Goldschmidt. yeah. the whole, all the way back to the uh, the amphibians and the blue-green algae back here. <laughs> yeah, our our my, the the very things in our cells that fix the oxygen that we breathe by are very, very close to the blue-green algae, the mitochondria that, that fix the oxygen in our cells, are very close to the algae that we descended from a 1,000 million years ago, 2,000 million years ago. Right here. here. So that our, oh, when, when we talk about myself, <laughs> we, we, uh, I feel we can't separate ourselves out from uh, all our relations, uh, our family, our, our, our human uh, group. So obviously, uh, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of society, we are individuals, we act as individuals. But I feel that, just as our, our, our friend here, does the, the grief she's felt about her son's suicide, and continues to feel that, uh, you know, excuse me for using you as an example, but uh, I mean, it's a very, it's an extremely, extraordinarily powerful connection that we have with each other. And... Um, that we, our lives affect each other. So even though it might make perfect sense to someone and they can rationalize how they wish it to be to end their own life, that the people who are in their families are affected by that. And then the, the people who are connected to them. So that uh, you might be at ease with the idea, but then everyone else has to digest it too. And I was really struck by what you said, Sasha, about in Belgium, because you know, a lot of my family is Belgian, <laughs> the Barats family from Ostend in Belgium It's going to get worse <coughs> yeah. because there is now a move to extend the law to cases where legally people cannot give consent I children. also what I was going to go on to say is that uh, I mean it's interesting what I was going to say how people sort of absent themselves from the hospital <laughs> on those days so then wh- what does that say about people who are disabled who have cerebral palsy who you know? Who don't have a kind of good quality of life? They can't speak. They can't move. Should they just be euthanized, i.e., killed, because they're not that they don't have a good quality of life? Yeah, I don't want to get <laughs> too uh, too sort of drawn into the the, the politics of it. Um, but I do feel these are all very connected, and that it's I found it quite shocking. Also finding. People who are practicing Buddhist and you know eminent <laughs> practicing Buddhists speaking quite matter of factly about well of course you know assisted suicide is perfectly reasonable and good and a sensible thing to to consider um you know also the economic considerations you're not being a, you don't want to be a burden on society you know you' kind of a, the less economic burden on on, on the community of one less body to look after, yeah. <laughs> But uh, I feel that um, there are, are, are much deeper and more real and human considerations that are, are being lost. So to come back to, to Gregor's question, and also there was also, a question from uh, Rebecca. Who's Rebecca? I'm here. Rebecca. Yes. So you're responding to your question about caring for aged and uh, uh, disabled parents or parents with diminished faculties. That a lot of it 's to do with decision making. How do we make decisions in a skillful way, and that the mind is pursuing this the idea of, i want to f- i want to know what the right thing to do is mm. and the the thinking mind gets hold of the idea of the right thing and goes around and around and around, trying to to arrive at you know, the right thing by. Um, weighing up pros and cons and, and uh, for, for many of us it's a, it's a huge tangle trying to decide so that one of the, the um, I think Joseph touched on it a moment ago about in your, you know, looking into your heart or drawing upon your heart of hearts and in essence that's what I, when people ask about decision making or how to decide I think it's very important to put aside the idea of the right thing that 's a, a kind of a fantasy that we hold that there is one right thing that I just have to discover what it is, but more to recognize there are a, a, a skillful choices and unskillful choices, and that we uh, uh, when we are are trying to to say come to a decision about how to relate to a situation we the, the way I work it is to to draw, to open my heart as much as possible, to let the mind be as quiet as possible, the heart open, and then draw in all the different elements that are at play. Just to bring those up. There's this, and there's this. There's my, I love my mother, and she, you know, she's made these comments, and, and so, but I have these, these misgivings, I have these feelings about taking life. And then inviting all of those in, not to try and come to a logical conclusion, but just to in, in a way invite them into the space, and then to, to just let yourself sit with that. To, to see, uh, uh, having invited those different elements into the, into the space of your own heart. Then, in a sense, to draw upon your own intuitive wisdom. So, this being the case, this and this and this is all here. So, what does that say? And then to listen to what arises. You know, to to to, uh, and it's hard to in a way put a, put the the calculating mind <laughs> uh, aside, but this is the way that I find is the most real and effective way to to give direction, to take a direction, and that because uh, often we don't listen to our own hearts because we're so busy figuring it all out with our brains, and that. Uh, to say, well, what what do I really feel here? What's what's most important to me? What's really going to help her? So, these kind of ways of of drawing that into the heart and then and listening, listening to your own intuitive wisdom, and that might sound a bit woolly. Uh, but it's uh, when you use the meditation for that, it can uh, be really surprising when you uh, you you uh, you are simply asking yourself the question you know, what feels like the best thing for my mother, then it can be Oh! Well, and then it's, there's, there can be an obviousness that we were missing because we were so busy with all of the shoulds and shouldn'ts. So, uh, I, you know, one, I, I can't make your decisions for you, but that in terms of how to, uh, to make decisions, that's what I would really encourage, and we can talk about that a bit more in the uh, as the days come, but th- those are the kind of things that, that come to mind. Mm-hmm.
9: Can I, can I put one I for that question? Just, just
1: short one. Um. Oh, I wonder if I want to. Yeah. Well, do, I'm just.
9: Just very short. Uh, how how Asian Buddhist people apply to that, your, your your question there? If your mother, if this is a law of karma, come in very strong. If she believes in that, and you try to work, and then if she's Buddhist, they say that this is your karma. Mom, your karma is coming. Doesn't matter whether you want to stop now or not now. It, 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 it unfolds, and you have to take care of it. Yeah, I, I can help you, but I cannot do as what you wish. Because once you see the karma come out, receive it. Receive it. Doesn't matter. It Doesn't matter. You have to receive it anyway. Just you accept it. This is my karma. I will work it out. You help me to work it out. You know, like helping explain her or through um, offering dana. This is how we, how, how we did. You know? And then she's happy with that. Because if you meditate, if any one of us meditate, your karma will emerge. This is how, how we meditate. will emerge and you take it because you say that, oh, this is mine. Mine thing come out. I will take it. And from now on, I'm not going to repeat again. So you do not want to take the karma from your mother by accepting what she told you to do. That's her own karma. And we try to work you know, with her so she can accept that easily. That's all I want to add it in. Yeah. Thank you, Ajahn. Do you have anything to add, Brother? <laughs> I'm
1: not sure I can. My heart's for the generosity. Appreciate it. I, I, just would would add. I, I, very much agree with Ajahn Bodhi in that <clears throat> not only is the, the is it a, is it an an uh, an intervention, but it could be an interruption. Because you and I don't have that real power to know we're reacting from a situation, but to respond, as they say, is really to what I did, is to, to, to That we're emphasizing coming back within one's own heart. And and if I do interrupt, intervene, and interrupt, then am I really? Am I really? Is it solving anything? So so this little cat, this little dog or this person, whatever the situation, there's certain karmic things, this is what Sister is saying, that need to be played out. And so it's so important to realize and take responsibility if you have any sense of these teachings and if there's any truth to cause and effect, then that intervention has an impact. I can't know what it is, but I certainly believe and know that it's going to have. And of course Ajahn Chah is is a complex example but i can remember this just the story cuz it's it's more complicated but there was a point before he kind of started to be coherent and speak for himself he says out I my all out pour out which basically translates as doctors and all that that's enough i don't i don't need that anymore so let me die peacefully at the monastery he started to deteriorate 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 and then the king and queen say well we'd like to Invite Venerable Ajahn Chah to come to Bangkok and have the best doctors, nurses, the best medical care that this country has to offer. He'd already said, no. Who's gonna make the decision? So the community of elders, the senior monks, were together. I was there and and I watched them struggle. I can remember at the time I was kind of torn myself but I didn't have to make that decision. So collectively they sat and they discussed this as as people that had been around him and loved him and cared for him. And and and, and in the end it was it was the decision. I'm not I, can I say it was right or wrong, it was the decision they made. It was basically based on they they were they had a certain trepidation of 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 reproach if they said, Here we have the best care so they would be societally say no to the king you know to take care of him and then he dies and that would have some some consequences and 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 even though he didn't want that they felt that they really had this was the last kind of resort okay we really do have to 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 allow this even though we know his wishes are differently and so at that point just think about it, at that point then it changed didn't it and that's part of the karmic whole thing as well that they didn't abide by his wishes but maybe ultimately he lived on for 10 years and there were 10 years where people had that opportunity to come in, wipe his backside, care for him, love him. I mean he was cared for. Money could not buy the care that Venerable Ajahn Chah had. Absolutely could not purchase it. All the money in the world because the care came from love, devotion and dedication to someone who, who just is, is, is one of those rare beings, you know, and there's, there's others, but I, I think about that, and I used to, think, well, you know, you, you could buy, money could buy the amount of support, but they couldn't buy the love, there's no way, because that had such a, a, a deeper kind of, um, was such a deeper part of it.
0: It feels like a very good um, closing point for hardly Q and A. That's why I prefer to think of these as like a dhamma dialogue and exchange, because you all have a lot to offer that, that we're receiving from as well. So it's uh, it's uh, an exchange that uh, is, uh, I feel has been very very rich, and I think plenty for today for us to ponder over. And then we'll gather again this evening, usual time, seven thirty.